Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Shalom. This is Rabbi Joshua Heller, Senior Rabbi of Congregation B'nai Torah in Sandy Springs, Georgia. Welcome to Daily Daf Differently. Today we are studying Masecha Chagiga, Daf Yud, Hud, Aleph, and Bet. The theme of the whole tractate, of course, is the Chagiga offering, which would be brought as an additional celebratory sacrifice on the festivals, even beyond those explicitly mentioned in the list of sacrifices and offerings in the Book of Numbers and elsewhere. On this daf, we finally reckon with the fact that the Chagiga offering, despite the fact that there is a whole tractate devoted to it, really has only a very tenuous basis in the biblical tradition. In fact, what we see is that this daf confronts the reality that in so many areas, Despite all protestations to the contrary, Rabbinic Judaism reflects significant innovation in content and in focus with respect to the Judaism described by the Bible. And the Mishnah today gives us just a small sampling of some important observances that are innovations of Rabbinic Judaism. So, for example, the idea that one may have a vow annulled hovers in the air. In other words, there is really no scriptural basis on which it rests. Other concepts are described as mountains hanging by a hair. There is perhaps a thin thread in the Bible from which huge bodies of law have been spun. So, for example, we will later see the faintest hint of the Chagiga offering in the Bible. Similarly, there are just a few verses in the Torah that describe the Shabbat prohibitions. They forbid melacha thoughtful work, but without really specifying what that is. And the sages will go far out on a limb to derive the 39 specific categories as well as subcategories and extensions of those 39. Conversely, we'll see, tomorrow, other commandments have a stronger scriptural basis. So civil law and damages, laws of purity and impurity, and forbidden sexual relations have chapter after chapter of the Torah devoted to them. And while they may undergo further explication and analysis at the hands of the sages, they are already well developed in the biblical text. So this Mishnah is matter-of-fact about the reality that a number of the tractates of the Mishnah are at least apparently only tenuously rooted in the biblical text. And that's actually characteristic of the Mishnah's approach to law. It typically makes simple statements of law, and it is rarely concerned with establishing the origins of those rulings in the biblical text. And, in fact, the Mishnah seems to be comfortable with the idea that these rulings are part of a received tradition, passed down through the generations, that may be entirely independent of the biblical text itself, but rather represents a parallel path of transmission and even revelation. The Gemara, on the other hand, is having none of this. One of the Gemara's primary global concerns is showing that there is, in fact, 
a biblical basis for each of the rulings of the Mishnah, because it wants to use those biblical origins as proof for the legitimacy of the rabbinic tradition as a whole, and along the way to assess the relative reliability or authoritativeness of the various competing views on any particular topic at hand. And so, the Gemara turns the premise of this particular Mishnah on its head. And for every one of the flying or suspended bodies of law, ends up asserting a biblical basis. So, for example, regarding the annulment of vows, there is a very strong rabbinic tradition that a sage may annul a layperson's vow, even though that vow should have the force of biblical law, which says time and time again that vows must be fulfilled. And so, we are immediately presented with five views asserting its biblical origin. Four are Tanaim, contemporaneous with the Mishnah itself. Rabbi Eliezer, Rabbi Yeshua, Rabbi Hanania, his nephew, and Rabbi Yitzchak. And the fifth, Shmuel, is a generation or so after the closing of the Mishnah. And all of these proofs are somewhat tenuous. So Rabbi Eliezer says that the biblical text in Numbers twice says, Yafli. And he interprets that to mean that some vows are to be upheld and some aren't. Rabbi Yitzchak cites a verse from Shmot, indicating that donations to the temple must be vowed with the heart, implying that a vow that is not made with the heart is not valid. Both of those readings are a little bit of a stretch. And the next two explanations aren't even from the Torah. Rabbi Joshua cites a verse where God makes a vow in wrath and then retracts it. Asher nishbati v'api imavu'una menuchati, vowing that the Israelites will not enter the land of Israel, which, of course, they eventually do. His nephew cites a verse from Psalms which says, I have vowed and I will fulfill. Now, since that verse says, I have vowed and I will fulfill, that implies that there must be some circumstances where not fulfilling a vow would be an option. And, of course, these are not even from the Torah at all. They're from, they're from Psalms. Shmuel's answer is the one that the Gemara ends up accepting. The verse in number says, he shall not profane his word. He shall not profane his word, indicating that someone else may do so, opening the door for a rabbi to annul the vow of the layman who made it. In fact, of course, what's really going on here is that the earlier sages are looking at the passages in Numbers, which indicate that a father or a husband may annul the vows of the women in their household, daughters or wives. And the rabbis extend this to indicate that apparently one of the prerogatives of someone higher in the social hierarchy would be to overturn the word of someone who is lower on the societal totem pole. And so they take this ancient conception of a gender hierarchy and extend it to their own roles as leaders in the community. Now, of course, later generations of sages are not comfortable simply asserting that without having a biblical source to back it. Similarly, Agamara notes that it is uncomfortable with the idea that the Chagiga offering, the central topic of this whole tractate, might not have a strong scriptural basis. And so we wrestle with the question based on a few different textual sources. And in the end, we conclude that since the word Bamibar appears in a verse related to the word Chag in Shmot in Exodus chapter 5, and also in relation to sacrifices in Amos, we conclude that the word Chag 
in Exodus must also apply to sacrifices, when in fact the word Chag can imply celebration in general, dancing in a circle, many other things. But this particular type of reading is called a Gezerah Shava, where you relate two words because they appear with the same common word in two different places. And it's a common form and argumentation of rabbinic logic, but here too, we don't normally perform a Gezerah Shava from a Torah text to a prophetic text. So, what we've seen today is that our sages in the Mishnah are quite comfortable with the idea that a law might not have a strong biblical basis, but the Gemara really wants to backtrack on that because they want to assert that our tradition draws its legitimacy from Scripture, even if they have to stretch pretty far to make that point. Tomorrow, we'll see some different rules that are on, at least apparently, a firmer footing. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.